right now poised at the edge of the galaxy. Emperor Zerg has been secretly building a weapon with the destructive capacity to annihilate an entire planet. I alone have information that reveals this weapon's only weakness. And you, my friend, are responsible for delaying my rendezvous with Star Command! You are a toy! You weren't the real Buzz Lightyear, you're a, you're an action figure! You are a child's plaything! You are a sad, strange little man, and you have my pity. Farewell. I'll be back. Chewie. We're home. Are you not entertained? My name is Bob. James Bond. I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. My name is Nero Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. I'm a doctor, not a doorstop. I see dead people. Is this city Alpha 5? You are a toy! is Retake, a show about enjoying the cinematic arts. That includes TV shows, old films, new films, short films, trailers, animated films, just about anything that might catch our fancy. Howdy partner, I'm TJ, your neighborhood computer-generated toy cowboy. I'll be helping you along this journey through cinema today, and joining me is my ever-faithful partner. It's an odd pairing, a spaceman and a cowboy. But it does work. It is Joe Darnell. How are you, Joe? He went all out for that intro. Of course I did. Uh, this is like Throwback Thursday, only it's Wednesday. And it comes out, does well, this come out tomorrow? This will come out tomorrow if I get, get it edited awesome. tonight. Toy Story from 1995. Great for Throwback Thursday. Yes, yeah, If perfect. you get it done. Yeah, well, I'll, I will uh, I will go edit this podcast as soon as we get it recorded. I'm talking about editing something we're not even finished recording yet, but, but we'll get it out there for Throwback Thursday. Yes. So let's, all right, cut all that. This is Throwback Thursday. Welcome to the year 1995. (laughs) I am so glad that we are getting to this. Uh, We've probably talked about it before, but that was in another life. I think we've officially reviewed it before. Did we not? I don't think we did. We talked about Toy Story 3. I think we talked about Toy Story 3. Yes, I think we did that. And we'll we'll get to that again for retake eventually, because we've got to do them in sequence here. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so if I'm... If I'm I'm the cowboy, right? You said this is a. I said you're a spaceman. You're Buzz. I'm a spaceman. Ah, do you not know what my nickname was growing up? So you have super lasers. You have killer laser things. I I don't mind, but do you know what my nickname (laughs) was growing up? I have no idea, Joe. I've only known you as an adult. Okay, I was Woody for about ten years of my adolescence. That's just weird, Joe. Yeah, I was Woody. That's Mm, what everybody called me. Do you know what my nickname was growing up? Uh, it wasn't Buzz. I, I it was can tell TJ. you that. Oh, it was TJ. That, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> it does make sense, doesn't it? Mm-mm. That That's t- technically still my nickname, TJ. It just stuck. Uh, yeah. the, the, if the boot fits. Uh, you, you know, you got you to gotta stamp Andy's name on it if it fits. Mm. Uh, see what I did there? <clears throat> the jokes, they're, they're not coming out very well tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is Toy Story. It, it uh, is a great movie for... Yeah, actually, there is actually a considerable number of uh, jokes with double meanings and stuff in this film. There is. I don't know if I can remember them all, but I'll, I'll count on you for that. A lot that, of references, so. a lot of double meanings. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's count up the stats here real for, uh, real quick first. Um, it was released November 22nd, 1995. Man, we were kids, Joe. 
Um, it was uh, directed by John Lasseter. It had a production budget of $30 million. That is like chump change for, you know, by, by today's oh, standards. Only $30 million. You could buy I Nintendo know, right? for that much nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> It grossed worldwide um, over, and I don't know. I don't know how uh, Box Office Mojo calculates this. If it continues to calculate sales of DVDs and stuff, I, I wouldn't think so. Oh, but in any, in any yeah. event, Box Office Mojo says three hundred seventy-three point five million dollars worldwide gross. I should hope that they stopped many years ago, at least before Toy Story Two. They yeah, I would stop. think so. Um, interestingly, um, this, this movie does have a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. That is very rare. It's very, very, very rare. I can count the number of films that have that on one hand, probably. Uh, I can't think of anybody who ever disliked it. Even my, my stodgy old grandfather who never watched anything, who had bad hearing and didn't like kids movies, liked this movie. What was that, um, that critic that everybody kind of hates? Um, and, uh, he, there was a big, uh, hubbub with him a, a year or two ago. And I don't even remember what the hubbub was now, but he, he made some, I think some strange remarks, uh, disparaging someone on stage during an event. Um, I can't remember his name, but I feel like, I think this may be the film that he wrote a critical review of and he was the only one. Oh, and wow. I think, and it, it bumped it down to 99, 99% on Rotten Tomatoes, um, and then they removed his review. <laughs> uh, just Good because, man. anyway, I, I I could have that story somewhat wrong, but that's what's sticking in my head. I'm going off memory here. Anyway, mm. I like the story, so I'm I'll, I'll just kind of pretend that's the way it is. So, um, the cast is uh, Tom Hanks as Woody, Tim Allen as Buzz Lightyear, Don Rickles as Mr. Potato Head, Jim Varney, may he rest in peace, as Slinky Dog, Wallace Shawn as Rex, John Ratzenberger as Ham, Annie Potts as Bo Peep. John Morris as Andy, Eric Von Detten as Sid. You know, that that name just works as Sid. I, <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> it just, yeah. yeah. And then Lori Metcalf as Mrs. Davis. The composer was Randy Newman. Oh. Joe, as is traditional, would you tell us the storyline of this film? Yes. So we got it right here. We have, have you ever wondered what toys do when there are no humans around? Toy Story peers into the life of the toys of a little boy named Andy, whose favorite toy is Woody. This position of favorite gives Woody rank and prestige among the other toys, but Woody's place is challenged by a newcomer to the scene in Andy's room, and Woody must learn to overcome his jealousy and accept the newcomer with open arms or risk becoming an outcast. So, Joe, I, I wrote that storyline and asked you if you were okay with it, and you said, well, that's what most people think the film is about, but I'll let it slide. I, I'm curious to dig in and find out what you mean, because, of course, there's so much more to the movie than that. And I, I was just trying to write a very quick overview of the film, uh, and I didn't like anything I was coming up with on the internet uh, anywhere, so I just wrote one real quick. So I'd like to dig into what, what, you, what your meaning was behind that, Joe. Yeah, well, it sounds like a great storyline to sum up sort of Woody's conundrum for the first two acts of the film. But then mm-hmm. when they kind of allow for Buzz and Woody's conflicts to run parallel with each other there right before the final showdown, Woody has a brilliant monologue. It just goes and goes. And it's a time for him to contrast what he's going through with what Buzz is going through. And what you realize is that they're both looking out for just what is worth living for. And they both derive that meaning from the same source. And while Woody's jealousy definitely distracted him from a deeper rooted matter, in the end, you realize it's not so much that he, he, uh, his jealousy was something he had to overcome 
uh, just, you know, to accept the newcomer. It was more than that. He, he didn't want to just accept the newcomer. He really wanted to improve his loyalty and love for Andy. And that was enough. Like it wasn't enough to accept the newcomer. What really mattered was that he relinquished that level of intoxicating jealousy because what really mattered was loving on the boy, whether or not he was number one. And for a little while there, all he wanted was to be number one. And that became less important to him when you see how it contrasted with Buzz's problem because Buzz thought he derived all of his meaning from being a superhero in space. But then when Buzz realized, no, he actually had an excellent purpose to uh, being Andy's toy and one of Andy's favorite toys, then he was deriving meaning, acceptance, and fulfillment from the exact same thing that Woody was. And favoritism really didn't matter so long as they were both in it to serve the kid who really loved both of them very much. Yeah, yeah. I would say that Woody's journey, it's not because when we come into the film and jealousy certainly plays a part in this, but but Woody's journey is learning that um, his satisfaction and, and joy and purpose in life is not to be Andy's favorite toy, but it is to see Andy be joyful, you know, and it doesn't really like secondarily, like, sure, he has a toy. His desire is to be played with and to to be Andy's one of Andy's favorites. But he has to learn to put aside like essentially his jealousy is selfish and he comes to realize that. And he says, no, what I need to do is I need to get Buzz back home because that's what's going to bring Andy joy. And, And so there's there's definitely a curve there or an arc that that Woody is on that he he realizes that his jealousy is interfering with his primary purpose. So, TJ, we can't talk about this movie without talking about our original experiences. I want to go back to 1995. Okay. What was well, your impression I didn't see of the, the film, and I didn't see it in 1995. <sighs> TJ, I'm sorry. No. Oh, are so we sorry. doing this? Is this really the show you're going to confess that you did not watch the film in theaters? So this comes up all the time, and it's almost like you forget, Joe, that I there was a period in my life where we just didn't watch in my family much movies or films. But TJ, or TV this was a family or... film. It was lauded as one of the best films of all time. It was. No, I get it. It was good natured. It, it was a I'm... family film. It was the first. CGI film on the big screen or, well, I guess there were a few really poorly produced CG animated television shows that predate this, like the incredible crash dummies, but this was golden. I mean, like the trailers that previewed this film knocked it out of the park. What else did you want? I know. I I completely agree. And and in fact, I I think as far as I know, this is the first completely 100% computer generated film to air to to make it to the big screen. As far as I know, at least in a, in the United States, it could, maybe there's something we're missing, but I've never heard of another contender. And like I said, there were there were CGI animated television commercials. There were animated television shows. I remember a few that came out around the exact same time as this film. A few television shows I was actually watching, but they were nothing in comparison to this in terms of the quality. The um, the scale, the budget, the values, the the all-star cast, the craftsmen between Pixar and Disney. And, you know, really, Disney hadn't been proven just yet because we knew that some of the people there had previously worked for Disney, but we had not seen their own filmmaking chops until this film. You and mean, it you, was you mean in, Pixar hadn't been proven yet. I, did I get that the other way around? You said Disney hadn't. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a different story. 
And the thing is, is this film took like, what was it about uh, seven years once it got the green light, but it, maybe yes. it was already in production before that. I think I want to say it was about a, a nine to 11 years that they well, were my, actually my understanding is that John Lasseter had this, the ideas of this rattling around in his head for a while yeah. and was putting it together and technically started before they got the green light. But then the, essentially, yes, it was like, I, I think you're right in saying it was seven years that it was in production. And and when you when you read stuff, like I, I want to read two quotes from Roger Ebert in his review. Uh, here's the first one. The movie occupied the attention of a bank of 300 powerful Sun microprocessors, the fastest models around, which took about 800,000 hours of computing time to achieve this and other scenes. Uh, he's referencing some scene, which I've cut out of context, uh, at about 2 to 15 hours per frame. 2 to 15 hours per frame, Joe. Each wow. frame required as much as 300 megabytes of information, which means that on my one gigabyte hard disk, I have room for about three frames or an eighth of a second. Of course, computers are as dumb as a box of bricks if they are not well programmed. And director John Lasseter, <laughs> a pioneer in computer animation, has used offbeat imagination and high energy to program his. So that's the first <laughs> quote. And the second quote that kind of goes along with what we've been talking about is watching the film, I felt it was it. it I felt I was in at the dawn of a new era of movie animation, which draws on the best of cartoons and reality, creating a world somewhere in between where space not only bends, but snaps, crackles, and pops. <laughs> and that is probably the one of the most um, aware things that Roger Ebert has ever written. And he's written a lot of things that he like, but he, he seemed to be aware watching it in 1995 that this is the dawn of a new era. And he was so right. And, and that, that just kind of ties in with what we've been talking about. Well, let me tell you a little bit about my introduction to the film. I saw it with a, it was a trailer on a VHS copy of Cinderella my mom picked up about a year before <laughs> the film was released. Interesting. And I never paid attention to the trailers, but this was one I watched over and over again, kept rewinding and watching over and over. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And, you know, my vivid imagination, but I'm only a 10 year old boy. I thought it looked basically real. And... I, I I dreamt about the glories of playing with green army men and having a, a you know a talking toy cowboy doll that had never existed before. I wanted the cowboy doll so badly. I another thing that was rather unusual was just how little you really understood about Buzz Lightyear from watching the trailer. He was revealed, but you didn't get to really understand what his personality was like. Just right. what, how Woody was reacting to him. So Woody got all of this attention in the trailer and it was just loaded with personality. And some of these secondary characters were also highlighted in the trailer. And then when you actually start watching the film, it was so immersive, TJ. I was the right age for this film, more so than any other film I have ever been introduced to. This was the right film at the right age. And I watched it probably twice in theaters, but... I was just thinking about this before we recorded. I've probably seen this movie about twice or more times than any other film. So my second most watched film, I haven't watched twice as, you know, like half as many times as I've watched this film. This film, far and away, the movie I've watched the most. And uh, Interesting. It is incredible. This film really did it for me. I would cry. I would laugh. I felt like the characters were real. Um, and then a very emotional experience. Uh, after the film came out, my grandfather was in a car accident. Hmm. And on a very short notice, we 
we went, I went with my mom up to North Carolina to watch him for a while. And it happened over the, um, I think it was the summertime. And it was a very difficult experience because there wasn't a lot of fun to do there. And we didn't have computers. I didn't have my bedroom. I didn't have my toys. I didn't have my friends back home, but I only had a few toys that I was able to bring with me. And what I was able to take was Woody and Buzz and a handful of movies. And I was there for about four months, bored out of my skull at my grandfather's house with just little on my mind, except for how revolutionary this movie was. And I kept on replaying it over and over again in my head and playing with my toys. Um, So I, I did that just months after this film came out on VHS. You would have been about 10 when this film came out. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I was 11 years old when it came out on VHS. Okay. But yeah, I mean, that's just an expression of like how dear this film is to my heart. So it is crazy to me to imagine how this film couldn't be popular to everyone on this earth. (laughs) So I I am glad (laughs) to see that it got such a great rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I wish I could recount to you my first experience, but I honestly don't remember it. Um, I, I, because, and, and here's why I didn't see it till years later. Really? And, and my mind had already been blown with much <sighs> more, you know, um, you probably common... watched the matrix before you saw this. I'm didn't pretty you? sure I did. Yes. Oh, and, and I love the matrix. Oh, and, and so all this more common modern, uh, computer generation. So, so the movie didn't blow me away on that level, but I do remember, um, impressions. I don't remember where I was, or what the context was. But I do remember being impressed with the story. Do you remember how hard it was to find any of the toys? <laughs> I mean, like, I know you weren't concerned with that because you didn't see the film, but do you remember yeah, how ridiculously hard? Oh, it was mm-hmm. impossible. Before the movie came out, all the toys were sold out everywhere. They they highly under <laughs> underplanned for the demand. And this was there was a in you know a joke in Toy Story two about how that they didn't create enough dolls to meet demand, so there was <laughs> a whole aisle of Buzz Lightyear dolls because that's exactly what happened. Originally, there weren't enough toys to go around for Toy Story characters for more than a year after the film came out, and then suddenly they caught up with the demand, and then they had too much, and they were just occupying Toys R Us way too much, and it took a long time for them to take care of the uh, the extras. That makes sense. It was nuts, uh, man. It was so hard, TJ. I remember I would be like out grocery shopping with my family and I would see some other random child that had buzz just, you know, gleefully playing <laughs> with his buzz, walking around the grocery store with his mom and my Such jaw would drop life, like, Joe. yes, first world 11 year old problems. <laughs> and I was like, how did that kid get a hold of that mom? Help. You know, it was it was pretty hard. My you, Woody you, and Buzz horrible, for the first horribly abused child. Uh, the first year. Okay, man, I'm really taken back to my childhood now. But the first year after this movie came out, all I had was a six inch uh, action figure version of Woody and Buzz. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's it's so hard, Joe. It's so hard. I'm I'm crying tears for you. Uh, this is all going to go into the after show, right? <laughs> so why don't you uh you obviously you love this movie right joe yeah, yeah yeah what is this what does this film um communicate to you what does it say to you what what is it what is it about what is it what resonates with you man well it is one of the most heartfelt and warming films of i think the 90s because it, it had a lot of charm to it but it also had a lot of weight to it and it was a film that was very accessible for all ages while kids instantly saw 
toys and their real struggle because they, they, you know, a toy's life is short. They probably don't have that many experiences. It's very fragile and not a lot is in their control. So they have to follow the whims of their owners. And I think a child can really relate to that pretty quickly because they, they realize that their life is not in their control and they haven't been around that long. And they do feel like they, at least for a while, they are their parents' favorite person on the wor- in the world until, you know, they grow up and realize it's not true. But <laughs> Joe, that's horrible. <laughs> but on the flip side, you've got adults who realize that they relate a lot to the toys because they love their kids. And they like the idea that the toys have this relationship with the kids that parents kind of have. Woody has to respect the kid, you know, the kid a lot of the way that the, that an adult would their own child. And he just wants to, you know, be there for the child as long as possible. And this is true for all the toys. Uh, so they feel like family. They don't feel like, even even though, you know, this is just a, a band of toys, they all treat each other like family and their arguments that ensue feel familial. And then the way that you relate to them is very familial. So by the end of the film, you're in tears with them because you, this is a real triumph for all ages in a, a, the in the within the family. So I I don't know. Like I, I know that we are supposed to be talking about how great the jokes were, the interesting characters, but I think that the heart of this film makes it resonate above and beyond so many other films. But this was also a good era for Disney. But this was this was an altogether different kind of family film because so many of the other films were princess stories and uh, beauty and the beast is getting their live action adaptation now. But at the time we had the uh, cartoon films like little mermaid, you know, the lion King going on um, and people really loved those movies, Aladdin, but in general they, they had to do with magic and faraway tales. They felt like fairy tales and they had to do with princesses and, you know, sorcerers and the like that were trying to stop regular people. And this was a very imaginative, creative story that captured, I think, children everywhere just thought for more than a few hours how the toys must be alive because they saw them animated on a film. So really toyed with us. You know, you know the way that uh, they say- they toyed were, with us. <laughs> you know how they say that People, kids who watched the original Star Wars really believed the Force was something. They, they really thought that the Force was a possibility. Those people exist even to this day. Like, yeah. There, there are people, there are adults that believe this. And there's probably adults to this day that still believe that toys are alive because of a movie like this one. When it, it came out when they were kids. So that, that, yeah. that, that's why I think this movie resonates. <laughs> Well, like, like you said, this movie has several levels on which it resonates, and, and one is with the children who identify – first of all, obviously toys, you know, and it's a story about toys, so the children are going to love that. But the, I think that you're right, probably subconsciously, any any child who has siblings, and that's that's a good number of children on this planet, I would say. Certainly, uh, you know, I have four children, you have two children, and so t- typically speaking, most children in the world are going to have siblings – and so they can kind of relate to this um, this idea of being, you know, you know, am I my parents' favorite? Is this other one? I, this is this rivalry kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So they can certainly identify with that. Um, but then I think there there is this um, this arc that the toys are on that that is relatable to 
uh, by us because because uh, you know we we get get on this journey of wanting the best for our children. So it, it's absolutely I think it, it starts this trend that I th- I don't think Pixar has really ever failed to deliver on some level uh, ever uh, you know since Toy Story that they started in Toy Story, which is to make a film that resonates on some level with nearly everybody. Everybody can relate to the story in some way. And some ha- some have been more targeted for um, children and some have been more targeted for adults. Um, you know, for instance, I would argue that Inside Out is perhaps more of an adult film than it is a, a children's film, and yet it still resonates with children. So Pixar has this grand um, legacy of doing that with its films, and it starts with Toy Story. I mean, this this is the movie that started it all, Joe. Mm. Can can we talk about like uh, some of our favorite scenes, kind of going through from the beginning, some of the things that stood out? Yeah, absolutely. Please, let's do that because I think that it started off with the bang with Andy playing with the toys and captured the wonder of playing with the toys at that era where this child obviously was a great kid. Like you appreciated that this kid was not, you know, lazy in front of the TV, sipping on a lemonade. No, this this kid was engaged with everything that his mom and his dad had probably given him over the years. And there's his sister to be, you know, one of his spectators watching as the the toy story unfolds. Yes. And he's using the toys in a very interesting way that is very relatable to everyone. But you realize how heightened it is because Mr. Potato Head is the bad guy, which I don't know many kids had really considered before. But it just made total sense for a child and their imagination. But then you're introduced to these new toys that it don't exist in the real world mixed up with toys that do like the green army men, like Mr. Spell, yes. the slinky dog, which was an obscure toy, but still around and, uh, you know, large toy dinosaurs. And, um, what are some other examples? I remember a lot scared, of the bo- Joe. What now? <laughs> Were you scared? Oh yeah. <laughs> In, I can't, I can't quite do a yeah. wall of Sean. I can get close. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was pretty, uh, I, what did he say? His exact phrase. I love it. I just love everything that comes out of Woody's mouth. Oh yeah. Well, I was wall pretty close to being scared that times. Wallace Shawn is a national treasure. <laughs> oh, really is. And he is no better than he, when he is Lex or Rex. Or, oh yeah. Lex. I mean, I Rex and body like Rex and Wallace Shawn. Like it's just oh, phenomenal. Man. It really is the best. Some of the best casting or, well, Pixar <sighs> is so good at casting. They, they really are voice casting. And you would, you would think, well, it, it doesn't really matter who's behind that voice. You kind of, but, but it does. And it, it works so well. It's just so great. And it's funny how much of that was luck because at the time, Tom Hanks was a big actor, but if they had been producing the film just a year or two later, it would have been after Saving Private Ryan and Forrest Gump, and they would not have been able to afford him. Yeah. And so it was the right timing because he was definitely in a place where he was just a shoe-in for the character of Woody. But if it had been any later, they would have never got him. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, beyond that initial toy scene with Andy – uh, with all the toys coming to life and introducing the characters, there's some great one-liners. There's Rex and his personality coming out with Woody, and you see his leadership take you know take uh, the roost over all of Andy's toys. But then there's the the great scene unfolding as all the toys are preparing for Andy's birthday, and I think that this is where all the members of the audience were on the edge of their seats, and where you really captivated the adults was watching the Green Army men come to life on a mission. 
And mm-hmm. then the mom accidentally stepping on one of them and saying, oh, oh man, I thought I told him to pick these things up. You this know? scene is so almost accidentally morbid. It, like, it, like yeah. it, it really introduces this concept of if these toys are alive and real and, you know, stuff happens to go these toys all Just the time. And it, it's it's it's, you know, I've certainly broken toys and I've been sad about it. But then I soldier over never it. leaves a man behind. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 so great, but it's so kind of when you think about it, weird. <laughs> It uh, is. Yeah, it is. And you can see how this perspective also kind of reminds you of the vantage point of the pets or, you know, I guess like a little one in the house, the, the, from the vantage point of the toys ducking around the corners and being on the ground. And, and you think it's really creative when the soldiers use their parachutes to get down the stairs. And, uh, but then, but then the, 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 uh, the kids, the rambunctiousness of Andy and the family, there's, this great little thing that they did because I, I, I wonder TJ, I'm not exactly sure why it was so hard. I can't wrap my mind around this, but I don't know exactly why it was so hard for Pixar to make better looking humans for the time. I, I'm not exactly sure how to put my finger on it, but yeah, I understand that, that is one thing that kind of stands hard. out. It, it, it does stand out from, from a, like it's the one thing about this film that I'm like, Ooh, that, that, that doesn't age well. Everything right. else, because you're dealing with toys and plastic and stuff, I think it works well. But, but when you look at the humans, it's like, man, that, that is a limitation of, of the, the CGI at the time. Well, what's crazy is it's like, they didn't even wrap their mind around how they wanted humans to look at all. Like the facial features, the, the head sculpture, of Buzz isn't all that different from Mr. Incredible. But if they were designing a human in the Toy Story era of 95, like Mr. Incredible, I don't think that they could have understood like creatively, how do we want to translate this character that is supposed to be human versus this character that is supposed to be toy? So I, I think that they just had a mental roadblock there. Like we want the humans to look more human and allow for everything else to look more cartoon and more like caricatures. Whereas later on they figured out, you no, know, really what we got to do is we got to make all the characters in say a film like the Incredibles look like three dimensional representations of the cartoon characters we have always had. Well, and Pixar actually still goes back and forth on this because then they make a film like inside out and the humans in inside out look, you know, pretty, pretty human. That's true. Um, yeah. And, and oh man, did you, uh, did you see that short that Pixar did? It was in front of uh, it was with Finding Dory. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, um, but it's about this the bird, you know, on the on the this in the sand and oh yeah, yeah very really good. Yeah, it's so good, and and it is so uncanny valley. Like you know, at some points it makes facial expressions and things with its beak that you know birds can't do. But but at first you're like, am I watching something that's real made by Pixar? Like what is what is happening here? <laughs> and, and we, but, 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 you know, then going back to 1995 and watching this, it was, you know, on every level, I don't want to misconstrue. I don't want anybody to misconstrue what I'm saying on every level. This film is a technological breakthrough and it is fantastic and I love it, but it's funny to, it, it's interesting to look at the limitations of the time, like even just looking at the lighting and I'm not somebody who, you know, I, I when I'm looking at lighting, I can figure it out and I go, oh yeah, I can see how this scene was lit in real films, but I'm not one that's like super uh, criticize critical of lighting necessarily. I, I I can tell when lighting's bad, but but looking at this film, I can tell that that's the entire way that CGI films were you know uh, artificially lit in their artificial environment has changed so dramatically from what we see in 1995. It's just like it's barely. I mean, it's it's kind of almost flat in some ways, which which is interesting. It's just very interesting. The, yeah, and 
there were some other interesting details like how just the, the lighting was usually pretty exceptional. And one of the reasons why this film could feel very real at times. So when you're looking at like the landscape and the mud and puddles of water, it could look really real, but then it would show the leaves on the bush and they would look like they were totally plastic. Yes. Yes. So it was, it was inconsistent. And uh, like one of the great moments that looks totally real at a glance is Dinoco. Mm-hmm. When yeah yeah the, you pull up in the van, it's nighttime. There's the glare of the the fluorescent lights of the gas station bearing down on them. There's the shadows underneath the van. There's you know reflections of glass. There's rust on canisters. There's the the underbelly of a semi truck, and it feels it feels large. It feels enormous. And when you were in theaters when they did that and they showed the semi truck pulling up, it felt like it had such weight to it, like a real vehicle should right over top of the toys. Mm-hmm. So it, it felt like really real stakes there that they could probably be crushed. And um, they did a great job with the sound engineering so that it felt more real than life. The, the, the sound often it creates the impression of the illusion being, you know, more than real when it, you know, it's really all you're seeing is some pretty pasty polygons. Uh, but yeah, you're tricked in the moment. I want to talk. Make sure we talk about the kind of story arc uh, that that happens throughout this film. And, and to me, there there are two. Obviously, there are two primary characters, and, and the main main character is Woody. But secondarily, you've got Buzz, whose story arc, if you if you pay attention, it's pretty awesome. Both of yeah, them well, have pretty powerful arcs. Yeah, very very powerful. And and I I probably noticed Buzz's arc more in this last in this, uh, watch through yesterday than I than I have before. Which is, you know, it, the first couple of times you are at least first couple of times I watch Toy Story, it's mostly to me kind of a gag. Like he doesn't understand that he's a toy and oh, isn't that funny. But but it really and it is a gag at first, but it becomes like it's part of who he is. And then when he oh, and it's so almost so heartbreaking when he sees that commercial and he's just like, oh, man, Woody was right. I'm, I'm just a toy. What does it matter? You know, but then he's like, no, 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 no. This is no, this propaganda. And so he tries to do that fly. You know, he tries to fly. And that's when it just everything, this whole world literally comes crashing down. And uh, he just, he, <laughs> I love that scene in the, um, when, when uh, the, the kid, the daughter, uh, the girl takes her in for tea, you know, and then Woody comes in when the, when the girl leaves and he's like, uh, he's just, he's, he's so like out of it and just like saying wild, crazy things. And <laughs> it's so, he's so depressed. It's so sad. A funny thing too is that if you check out the movie soundtrack, it doesn't have a lot of. There's not a lot of different there. It's it's very very consistent with the film. But the song there where Buzz falls and he gets really uh, depressed and he's you know it's taking its toll on him. There's actually a second verse to the song, and oh. it is even more depressing and bittersweet than the first. <laughs> And uh, when you hear it, it, it makes total sense. It really expresses what Buzz was psychologically going through better than the first one you hear in the movie. So, uh, yeah, so Buzz has a great arc, and uh, it's really powerful. Woody, obviously, is the primary arc and, the, and, and really the, the most powerful because he's the one that has to learn to put his jealousy aside. Well, not uh, just that, the, but he also seems a little bit more humanly relatable because – Face it, like most of us are not, you know, space rangers, and yeah, it's true. Don't feel yeah, like he's, we're superheroes he's... in space, you know, where the whole world relies on us and we fight evil emperors. 
And I, I think Woody has this um, this fear when faced with Buzz, who's this really cool toy, at least in the frame of the movie. He's got these lasers and all these things. And, you know, uh, uh, side note, it's like no, no toy like Buzz would actually last as long as Buzz wound up lasting over the years. <laughs> <laughs> but but that aside, like he's he's got these cool lasers and batteries and wings and all these things. And Woody has a pull string and he's, you know, he's 50 or from, from a different era of toys. Yes, and he's and, in pretty and, good shape. <laughs> and, and I think that what makes that so relatable is all of us, every single person, you've, you've heard of imposter syndrome, right? Well, we every single one of us on the planet, uh, when we're trying to, most of us on the planet, when we're trying to work alongside people who are good at what they do or somehow you you have this feeling that you're not good enough and and somebody else is going to usurp what you're doing and get in your way. And, and it's just so relatable that, that Woody is going through this thing with Buzz. Um, and, and I think that's what makes Woody a character that is so endearing and and you kind of almost hate it when he's scheming and conniving because you see yourself in him. Yeah. And, and along the way, it, it's not so serious that it doesn't take the time to make this just a very fun and wild ride. Like we were saying earlier, there's all these one-liners, there's all these in-jokes, there's stuff intended just for the adult audience, and then there's mm-hmm. the stuff intended for the kids. And everything in between, you can remember these experiences like playing with combat Carl and Sid is blowing him up. You know, there's countless kids who have tortured their toys in the backyard. They bury them. They burn them with magnifying glasses. I mean, I never burned any of my toys with no, magnifying no, no. glass. I was much more like Andy. But I know plenty of kids who did in my neighborhood. And mm-hmm. so I was surrounded by Sids and I just, I cringed because I knew I was Andy at heart. Well, well, one of my best friends was more Sid-like in the treatment of his toys. And, and you know, at the time it wasn't something... And that's one of the weird things about this film is it sort of vilifies Sid. But in reality, like this friend that I had, he was a normal kid and it was fine. They're just toys. But but because these are not just toys in the frame of the story, it gets a little weird, right? Because I yeah. was I was definitely much more like Andy with my toys, and I I would ha- I had my toys put away nicely and categorized, and and uh, my my action figures were Star Trek. Um, but but I, <laughs> I loved them dearly, and I had several models of the Enterprise. I still have. Uh, two models of the Enterprise from when I was six, seven, eight, nine. Um, I still have them. So I was much more like Andy in that way, keeping track of my toys and keeping up with them. And so that that was fun to see Andy have that kind of a personality. But then you also identify quickly Sid. And you gotta you gotta wonder like how would my best friend from childhood have reacted to Sid? Would he have recognized himself as being Sid? <laughs> or I, I don't know. That's where things get kind of weird. But but I definitely was like. Oh yeah, I, I could see a kid blowing up his toys. Like that's that's kind of what he did. <laughs> a bunch of adults in therapy now because of the things <laughs> they did to their toys and they were growing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fun fact, TJ. Uh, well, growing up, my other nickname was GI Joe, and oh. well, okay, that makes more sense. Okay, but that's not it. Um, the fun fact actually is that my one of my middle names is Carl. So everybody thought that that was hilarious that <laughs> they were called Combat Carls in the movie. <laughs> That is funny. Uh, uh, speaking of which, I think that is worth noting the Indiana Jones motif when they have the globe on the Andy's desk and it gets knocked off of its axis and starts to roll towards Buzz. That was just a great <laughs> yeah. example of one of those inside jokes that the adults could appreciate. And it actually really pays off. And But if you actually think about the ridiculousness of the situation, it's really laughable because if you could just like step back and look at the scene, it's just it's just like a very lightweight globe rolling towards a 12 inch Buzz Lightyear toy. 
it shouldn't have scared them, but they totally pull it off in the scene. So by then we were, we were, the suspension of disbelief was aside and we were enjoying the film. We were yeah, buying yeah. it hook, line it, and sinker. Like, and then there was that real threat with the big one, the, the firework like rocket and knowing what it could do was just a small, Oh man. Like all the other things that Sid had done in his room were nothing <laughs> compared to the damage that the big one could do. And you could totally see why a kid would actually want to do that in a very wrong sort of way. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, who doesn't want to see things blow up when he's 10 years old? It just makes total sense, but it must be horrifying for the toys. So um, I, I think we this film does raise a couple of, of strange uh, questions. Um, first of all, I want to know what, <laughs> okay. what Slinky actually survives being stretched like 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 Slinky Dog is at the end of this film. Yeah, at the end. <laughs> he, he's stretched out by the truck, yeah, on yeah, RC yeah. car. But, but more importantly, um, what, how, what, how, how, does, did, how does Mr. Potato Head – control his body parts when they've been knocked <laughs> off of his face. Well, yeah. So it, it and, and by the time we get to toy story three, it's almost like Mr. Potato head is his parts, not the body because he can put his parts on, on a tortilla and, and be Mr. <laughs> Potato head. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, anyway, uh, but, but the, the really, the, and, and I don't count this as a knock against the film because I think good films ask questions and don't necessarily answer them. And so one of the questions that I've always had about toy story is how do the toys know what the rules are? Like, like, cause Buzz apparently follows the rules, even though he doesn't know he's a toy, right? Like, how does that work? Yeah, how do the I toys the imp- know that? I always felt like there was a missing moment where they would explain that the toys just asked him to like play along with their culture, you know, like, I just, you know, go along with what the rest of us are doing because this is what we do on our planet or if something. If it wasn't for the way the story resolved with Sid, you could make up a headcanon that says the toys are compelled to be completely still and silent in the, when, when humans are around. But we know that they can, they can do that. They obviously scared Sid out of his mind. Yeah, yeah. So it's a little weird. It, it, it's, Why don't toys break the illusion and just be honest with their kids everywhere? Yeah, yeah. And so so what are the rules? Why are they are they compelled to keep them like it, it's hard to break them, but they can. And it just like it, it's it's hard to break out of that ingrained thing that's in them. Or it, when, when is it OK to break them? Because obviously Woody broke the rules and he <laughs> said he was going to break the rules and he had all the toys help him break the rules. And they broke the rules and scared Sid out of his mind. But and, then there were and all caused him serious psychological damage, I'm sure. But then there were all of other all the other Sid toys that had allowed themselves to be tortured. Right, to right. protect the secret. And many of them were completely eliminated. <laughs> and you see the remains yeah. in Sid's bedroom. Yeah, so why did exactly. they die for that cause? And 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 if a toy um if if a toy is one animate object, you know, and and then a toy is taken apart and different parts are used to make a new toy, does that become a new like a different character or is that like how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you got some good points, but at the same time, I think it's, that I mean it's just animated film. But, yeah, but you know. it, no, it, it's a fair question that none of us want to ask because it, the film obviously does not work the moment you try to come up with an explanation or change the rules, like make it so that humans know the toys are alive, or right. make up an arbitrary rule like no toys cannot cannot move around humans, like there's some sort of magical physical thing in the universe that just prevents them from being alive around humans. You know, it, it gets kind of weird 
the moment you think about making up some sort of arbitrary rule to govern the universe. So it's better off that they didn't explore that, I think. And they successfully didn't explore that for three films. Yeah, yeah, and and presumably for a fourth. (laughs) Yeah, and there was moments in Toy Story 2 where they're running around the airport and obviously they're just hoping that nobody happens to notice them, but they are moving around in plain sight for humans to notice them. They just never actually get caught. That kind of thing happens many times. Uh, Running around Al's toy barn. Yeah, Um, and then even in this film, when there comes down, it comes down to the chase at the uh, for the truck. There's all these other drivers out in the road, and if they could look up ahead, they'd see all these toys freaking out in the back of a truck. Like, what's that all about? (laughs) But these other drivers behind the truck, they're not phased. They're not paying attention. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Why not? But thankfully. Yeah, it's a kids' film, so don't think too hard about that. Yeah, detail. don't think too hard about it. it it's it's like you know there there's been many animated things that don't make a lot of sense when you think about it too hard, and and there's some things about Toy Story that are that are like that. Um, but you know, I'm like totally like okay I uh, my it. my big thing growing up was always how come sometimes it seems like John can understand Garfield and sometimes John can't understand Garfield <laughs> because technically he doesn't talk, he thinks. Like like it's it's just it's just a matter of convenience. So it's it, it's nothing in Toy Story is quite that bad as far as trying to that's, explain it. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I loved Garfield growing up, by the way. I loved him. And there and there is no Garfield without Lorenzo music. I'm sorry, there just isn't. Okay, okay. Well, then who is your favorite character in Toy Story? Well, obviously Woody, uh, just really? just because yeah, he's so obvious. relatable, and I love him. Really, but I love okay. Buzz too. So you know, yeah. But Buzz has the cool factor going for him, and Woody has a lot of heart and soul that Buzz lacked in this film. But I see. Funny enough, I never when I was growing up, I never gravitated towards the kind of toys that Buzz was. And I know that a lot of kids love the gadget toys and all the, the lasers and the cool sound effect. Like just give like. All of my, uh, in fact, I kind of hate. I had this Star Trek action figure set from Star Trek: The Next Generation, and Riker uh, was from some episode where his uniform had gotten torn up and his face had dark marks on it, and that was the act, Riker action here. I hated it. I just wanted him to be Riker, <laughs> you know. And so, um, I, 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 that's kind of, that's kind of like why I like Woody. In fact, I think he would have been even better if he didn't have that stupid pull string. Like if he was just oh. Woody. Oh, but that's. <laughs> That's just part of essentially who he is. No, I, I get it, and that's fine. But I'm saying if I wanted a toy, I would rather have – like I'd rather have less moving parts. Yeah, no, I, I see what you mean. I like simplicity in toys. Uh, but he was also one of a kind because he was loosely based on some sort of puppet, and they didn't really follow that through for the first film. But they made no, no. more of we- it in the second we definitely learn more about Woody in the second film. Right, but great. like even conceptually speaking, though they didn't want to go into the basis of why Woody exists in the first film, they still loosely based the idea on him belonging to a children's television show of the 50s. Yeah. And maybe he was like a toy based on a puppet. So what's interesting is that he is proportionally a very large toy compared to most. And that's true. It, it, it doesn't really make sense except in the fabric of the story. You just buy into it because in the nineties and the fifties and all the eras, I can't think of many children's toys quite like the scale of Woody. And, and for the fact of the matter, buzz was rather a novelty as well, because when the film came out, buzz was supposed to be a contemporary action figure, but he was a 12 inch action figure kind of in, in that way, based on, the 12-inch action figures of G.I. Joe from the past. But there was nothing like that in the 90s. So he, he was off the beaten path as well. So um, 
but you, you got to admit, like Woody and I are soulmates, but I, I have to say everything about Buzz, his locking wrist communicator, <laughs> the karate chop action, the pulsating laser lights, the... Um, you like the gimmicks. It, all of it. Just it, down to the fact that his helmet could swoosh if you press the purple button on the side of the helmet and they never came out with a toy that did that. Crushed well, as what, as, my heart. As Woody said to, to Buzz, you are a cool toy. You know, uh, Yeah, more to cool the movies than they ever pulled off in real life. But even the ones in real life were pretty impressive. Um, at times, there were some additions that really bugged the heck out of me because Woody and uh, other characters like Buzz for the the collectible toys that they made over the years and, you know, just the regular toys and made for kids, none of their, all their eyes were screwed up. Like Woody and Buzz's eyes were looking off to the, the like misdirections. They weren't looking mm. straight ahead. Like they, they didn't have the facial expressions and the position of the eyes that they had in the films, which just really annoyed the heck out of me. I guess I wanted, I wanted my Woody to look exactly like Andy's Woody, but the, yes, he, yeah. was, he didn't Woody. have the same expression and, and no one knows why. Well, Joe, we, we need to we need to move into the wrap up territory. This went quick, didn't it? It really does because I think that we are slipping into all of our feelings that aren't just tied to this film, but also into the sequels. Well, sure, yeah. And uh, I, I think as far as just comparing this film a little bit to the ones that came later, I do I do appreciate that Pixar continued to improve their craftsmanship, and they didn't stay locked in step with the 95 graphics when they made their sequels. Well, it yeah. it kind of goes without saying now that they wanted things to look better in Toy Story 2 and 3. But if you go back to 3 and watch it now, it feels like it's still absolutely state-of-the-art you know, production qualities. Yeah, well, I mean, and even just looking at any Pixar film you know, of the modern era – and then uh, looking at Toy Story in 1995, it really was an exercise in how far Pixar has come and how far they've pushed the boundaries of CGI. It's it's really fun. To, and it was really hard for them then, and it was really expensive. And like you said, it was very taxing on their computer systems. <laughs> well, well, I was I, I was wondering when I was reading Roger Ebert's thing. I need to do some calculations. I but I'm, I'm like, I wonder how much of the you know the fact that it took so many years to create Toy Story was just the fact of how much how long it took to render <laughs> the, the, the finished <laughs> scenes. You know, so that you have yeah. to render them, and then you have to come back in a couple of days and look at your scene and realize it didn't work quite the way you wanted it and re-render it. Like, oh my goodness, how does that even and, and I'm sure they were working with uh, proxies and, and stuff like, you know, I, I, I've I've been enough in the film world to know that you you will do an initial render that's really low quality that won't take very long. And you right. look at it and see if it's playing out. But but even so, like, man, that that is a lot of dedication to get CGI to work back when microprocessors were, you know, not what they are today. Where the, you know, our iPhones have more computing power than probably those 300 computers in one phone than those 300 computers that were rendering Toy Story. Yeah, not to mention that they were creating the software, which meant that they had to combat bugs internally sure. on yeah. their project that was going to be their bread and butter. And if it didn't work or if the bugs could not be resolved, then they were they were stuck. In As a software things. developer, I have no idea about these bugs of which you speak. Yeah, like for instance, <laughs> um, uh, going through a lot of the making of material many years ago, one of the bugs they had was that like body parts, like arms, you know, feet, hands, fingers, and eyes would for no apparent reason whatsoever suddenly be suspended from the characters that they were animating. So 
you would be moving his parts around and all of a sudden the eyes would be completely off of the body and suspended in midair in another part of the, the shot. And they couldn't figure out why are the eyes moving away? <laughs> you know, it was, it was just like <laughs> a, a really ridiculous technical cha- problem for such a simple problem. But, uh, and another thing that they had imposed upon them was that Disney had all this criteria for a feature film that they wanted to be tied to. So it had to have songs with lyrics. And there were a lot of things that Pixar pushed on. You've got a friend in me. Yeah. I mean, those things were not requirements for later Pixar films because Disney gave them a lot more creative license. Yes. But at the time, Disney really wanted to boss Pixar around. And they they kept on having to combat a lot of those, those, uh, those pushy requests. And it looked like, you know, they may not do another film together after Toy Story for a little while. And it was so hard for them to convince Disney to fund them in the first place. It's uh, it's amazing that it worked out. So conclusions, Joe. Uh, let, let's let's uh, let's wrap it up. What do you what do you think of Toy Story? How has it held up for you over the years? I don't watch it as much as I as I watch the others. Uh, my favorite is Toy Story two, and it's 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 just because the humor and the characters and the fact that it's so indulgent while going through Woody's story is uh-huh. more appealing to me. But I have a very fun place for this film in my heart. I can't imagine anyone not watching it in theaters when it was available. If you ever get the chance to, you ought to see it in theaters if it comes out for an anniversary of some sort. There are a lot of films I never got to see in theater that just make me sad. And this is one of them. Um, I've owned many collector's editions of this. Uh, Presently, I don't have one because my last one was destroyed by a pet, which makes me very sad. It was called The Toy Box, and it had Toy Story 1 and 2 and an enormous collection of making of material, and it was destroyed by a pet. Um, Bummer. Yeah, and you can't find it anymore. And it was the best version they ever made. I mean, even after they came out with Toy Story 3, the making of material that they threw in as bonus material was just not as good as what they had in the in the uh, the toy box for the yeah. first two films. Um, but yeah, I... <laughs> I can't imagine my life without the original Toy Story. Let's no, me way. either. Yeah. I, I And I'd have to say that despite the fact that you look at it and you can see how far Pixar has come, it absolutely does hold up today. I thoroughly enjoyed watching this film. I, I want to note that the, the runtime is only an hour and 21 minutes. It is a it is actually a pretty short film. And it's a, that makes it a very tight film. I'm sure some of that is due to the limitations of how long it took to render the freaking film, <laughs> but but it, it really is a very tight film. Nothing in it is wasted. The story is really compelling. Uh, the journey that Woody and Buzz take and how they become friends uh, is very compelling. Uh, it's identifiable. I, I really love this film, and uh, it, for a long time, I considered it my favorite uh, Pixar film, uh, and I would, I would have to say later Pixar films have uh, supplanted that place but this still has a special place in my heart regardless mm. and uh yeah i i would give this film joe if you uh if you held the gun to my head and said uh, put put a star rating on this film <laughs> i'd have to go four and a half out of five stars did you give a starting i don't remember i didn't um yeah i give it all the stars all the above so all all five stars Two thumbs up and four stars or five stars depending on okay. your scale yeah depending on your so so nine whatever stars. whatever the max nine stars in total Whatever the max of your star rating is, that's what it gets. Yeah, it's okay. a very moving film. It is very moving. Mm. Well, that's going to that's gonna bring us to the end of our review of Toy Story. I um, hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed watching it and creating this podcast for you. 
Um, so, Joe, people uh, hopefully will now want to continue this conversation with us about Toy Story. And where will they find you to do that? If you want to talk to me on Twitter, I am JCS Darnell, and I'd love to talk to you about movies, of course, like this. And uh, if you have another movie you'd like us to talk about, be sure to mention it. Absolutely. And you can find me on Twitter at TJ Draper Pro. You can find Night Owl, the network on which this podcast is hosted, uh, at Night Owl FM on Twitter. Uh, and uh, you will find the, uh, the actual network website at nightowl.fm. This show is at nightowl.fm slash retake. And if you do uh, then add slash 10, you will get to this show and the show notes because we'll drop a few things in there that we talked about. The link to uh, Roger Ebert's review that I mentioned earlier and quoted from and uh, all those goodies like that, places where you can find trailers and see uh, content and stuff like that. So be sure to check that out as well and check out some of the other shows on the network uh, that we have going on. It's only a couple, but we're looking to expand and we'll figure that out as we go. So be sure to check that out. And we would love it if you would review and rate the show in iTunes. That's the best way to help people find the show. So please do that as well. Uh, We are looking forward to reviewing a couple of films in the near future here. Uh, I've I've got a couple. We're we're rolling the dice and we're figuring out which ones we're going to do next. I'm excited about one potentially next week, but I'm not sure if it's going to pan out for next week or not. Still waiting to hear back. So I won't say what they are, but we're excited about what we've got coming up to review. It's going to be a lot of fun. So stay tuned to the podcast feed for retake for that. Thank you so much for reviewing this film with me, Joe. Good night, Mr. Lightbeer. <laughs> Buzz, hey, Buzz, are you okay? Gone! It's all gone. Oh, it's gone. Bye-bye. Woo, see ya. What happened to you? One minute you're defending the whole galaxy, and suddenly you find yourself sucking down Darjeeling with Marie Antoinette and her little sister. <laughs> I think you've had enough tea for today. Let's get you out of here, Buzz. Don't you get it? You see the hat? I am Mrs. Nesbitt. <laughs> Snap out of it, Buzz! I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, you're right. I am just a little depressed. That's all. I, I, I can get through this. Oh, I'm a sham. Shh, look at Wait, me. Buzz. I can't even fly out of a window. But the hat looked good. Tell me the hat looked good. The apron is a bit much. Out the mind. window, Buzz. You're a genius. <laughs> come on, come on. This way. Years of academy training waste.